This week, a lecture on presidential speeches and public opinion, focusing on the 1970s through the 1990s, with Claremont McKenna professor John Pitney. Here he discusses President Ronald Reagan's speech on the Soviet Union. This was very controversial at the time because many people wanted to uh, have closer relations with the Soviet Union, and the perception was that by using the term evil, uh, we would be provoking the Soviet Union. More from Professor Pitney in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to our discussion of presidential speeches through history. And uh, first point I want to make is uh, that for the first century and change of American history, presidents didn't really give all that many speeches. Uh, We have... uh, seen President Washington's farewell address, which was ghostwritten, okay, who ghostwrote it? Hamilton, of course. And if you saw the play, there is uh, uh, the, uh, the famous song, One Last Time. Uh, the thing, though, people call it an address. Washington never gave it as a speech. Washington never gave that address as a speech. It was all in writing. Uh, presidents gave uh, inaugural addresses, occasionally gave uh, speeches on other occasions. Uh, but uh, if they communicated with the public, it was generally in writing, sometimes official presidential messages, uh, sometimes unofficial uh, political communications through proxies. Uh, political allies would put out material uh, supporting their political position. Uh, that happened quite a bit in the, uh, in the 19th century. Uh, why was this? Because the norms were different. There was an expectation that presidents shouldn't give uh, a lot of speeches, shouldn't try to be demagogic. By now, you've read the Federalist Papers. You know the founders were very uh, concerned about the danger of demagogues, and presidents were aware of this norm even though in private they tried to mold public opinion, they were concerned about their public image and their public behavior. The other thing was pretty obvious, sometimes we forget this, technology just didn't allow for the president's voice to reach that many people. Uh, 19th century, no radio, no TV. In the first decades of uh, of the century, no telegraph. And uh, travel was difficult. Uh, You know, it's not as if presidents could get on Horse Force One and uh, that afternoon visit the the farthest reaches of the realm. It didn't happen that way. It was difficult. Now, in the middle of the uh, 19th century, you had the development of the telegraph. You had rail systems in place. You also had another underappreciated bit of technology, and that's shorthand. 
by the time of the Lincoln-Douglas debates of 1868, we had very systematized shorthand, which is why we have a really good stenographic record of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Or to be more precise, we have multiple stenographic records. And some historians have noted uh, slight differences in, in those records. Really, it was not until the 20th century that substantial numbers of people could actually hear the president's voice. Uh, if you look at the, uh, the chart here, uh, households with radio sets, uh, in 1922, there were only 60,000 households in the United States that had radio sets. Uh, by 1932, uh, the election of Franklin Roosevelt, that number was up to 18.4 million. Uh, there were some presidential radio addresses during the 1920s. Uh, Calvin Coolidge actually had a pretty good voice for radio. Uh, Herbert Hoover did some speaking on the radio. But really, when we, uh, we think about presidents and the electronic media, we're thinking about Franklin D. Roosevelt. And uh, Roosevelt is famous for the so-called fireside chats. Important thing to know, though, about the fireside chats. Uh, a lot of people think he gave them every week. No, 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 no. Uh, he gave them on special occasions. Uh, there weren't as many fireside chats as, uh, as people think there were. Uh, but Roosevelt had a very good voice for radio, and he understood in the fireside chats that uh, you didn't talk the same way as you did when you uh, were orating to a large crowd. Uh, a lot of times politicians of the era, what devilous amazing Speech just talking into the radio microphone. And uh, people would get turned off by that. Uh, FDR understood that's not the way you talk on the radio. Uh, he also used radio effectively uh, on certain special occasions. Uh, and uh, some of his major speeches were broadcast. Roosevelt gave acceptance speeches. Now, you may say, yeah, so? And the answer is, this was an innovation. Roosevelt flew to the convention in 1932 and accepted the nomination in person, which was something people just didn't do in those days. Wow, this is well, something special. Uh, in 1936, uh, he gave an acceptance speech again. Uh, really, acceptance speeches as we know them would not become regularized until well into the, uh, into the 20th century. Uh, and one speech in particular uh, that coincided with his presidential responsibilities came after the uh, attack on Pearl Harbor, the Day of Infamy speech. Uh, we'll see a bit at the beginning, and then we'll uh, skip ahead.
senators and representatives, I have the distinguished honor of presenting the President of the United States. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate, of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation and at solicitation of Japan, still in conversation with its government and its emperor, looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. Indeed, one of them like that for a while, but one thing you'll notice when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was giving a speech, uh, he gestured with his head. You know, you go, December 7th. Uh, there was a very simple reason for that. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt needed leg braces to stand. Uh, he had uh, survived polio and could not walk. Uh, he needed to hold the podium just to maintain his position. If he let go, he could, uh, he could fall. I mentioned the 1936 Democratic Convention. He actually fell. Uh, and the pages fell out of order, which created a difficult situation for him that he was able to uh, improvise. Uh, and so uh, that was uh, a bit of a limitation on his ability to gesture to uh, an audience. Now, in this particular speech, he's telling Americans what had just happened. Uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor. But he adds details that uh, Americans are just very recently learning. So we go ahead here in the speech. Yesterday, the Japanese government also launched an attack against Malaya. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Hong Kong. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Guam. Last night, Japanese forces attacked the Philippine Islands. Last night, the Japanese attacked Wake Island. And this morning, the Japanese attacked Midway Island. Japan has therefore undertaken a surprise offensive extending throughout the Pacific area. Okay, so uh, what we see here is that Roosevelt was trying to convey the enormity of what had just happened. It was not simply an attack on one military base in Pearl Harbor, but was part of a massive offensive in the Pacific. He wanted to rally public support for a declaration of war. Uh, and uh, he got it. He got the almost unanimous support of Congress with uh, one exception. 
uh, Jeanette Rankin, who by pure coincidence had also voted against the declara- uh, declaration of war in the First World War. She served two non-consecutive terms in Congress, and both times her, uh, her claim to fame was that she had voted against the declaration of war. The presidential uh, speech writing um, function gradually increases, uh, in part because presidents become more mobile. Uh, During the uh, 1950s, uh, President Eisenhower uh, begins making greater use of what we would today call uh, Air Force One. He originally called it the Columbine. And uh, at times, uh, uh, Eisenhower, who had uh, gotten a pilot's license, would actually take the controls. Uh, Sometimes he actually flew the plane. Uh, He was an extremely competent guy. Uh, So Eisenhower uh, did do some traveling, made some uh, speeches around the country, even did some television. One thing he didn't do, though, in the 1950s was live press conferences. Uh, There was pressure from the press for him to do live press conferences, and uh, he was resistant to that because he thought that uh, he might inadvertently reveal national security information. Now, you may wonder, why was he so paranoid and sensitive about national security information? Well, he had been the commander of American forces in World War II. I mean, when you had gone toe-to-toe with Hitler, you just kind of get sensitive about those things. Uh, But he did end up having uh, recorded press conferences, and they they worked pretty well. And he was good at them. Uh, We don't think of Eisenhower as a great orator, Uh, or somebody who was particularly expert in domestic policy, but the guy read his briefing book. He knew his stuff, and he he did pretty well in the press conferences. Uh, Big innovation in television came with JFK. JFK did have live press conferences. This was a format that was particularly good for JFK. Number one, uh, he got the reporters, He understood them culturally. He had briefly, in fact, been a reporter himself uh, after he got out of the Navy in uh, in the Second World War. Uh, He didn't need the money, obviously, uh, but he wanted to be able to say that he had had a civilian job, so his father arranged him uh, a reporting gig. And um, uh, he understood the press. He understood how to handle himself at a press conference. He was very good at it. Uh, and in, uh, uh, he came across well on TV in part, uh, and we'll talk more about this when we get into debates, uh, ironically because of the medication he was taking. If you look at pictures of JFK in the early 1950s, uh, he looks kind of sickly. By 1960s, he, he looks much better because he was taking cortisone, uh, which sometimes has the unfortunate effect of distorting people's features, but JFK was... Uh, so thin, it actually filled him out and made him look good. Uh, And his health was uh, not in the best of shape during his presidency. His problems were much worse than the general public knew at the time. But he came across extremely well on television. Uh, Gave important speeches, uh, 1962, uh, revealing the presence of Soviet missiles in Cuba. And uh, during the 1960s, and a topic we're going to come back to, is the, uh, the State of the Union. 
During the 1960s, presidents started giving the State of the Union address at night. Previously, uh, they gave it during the day. In fact, during the 19th century, they didn't give a speech at all. They sent a message to Congress. This was part of the norm that I had mentioned earlier that uh, presidents should communicate in writing and that they should be careful about uh, demagogic appeals to public opinion. So throughout most of the uh, 19th century, the State of the Union addresses were written documents, not oral presentations. Well, Woodrow Wilson uh, had a very different concept of the presidency. He renewed the idea of giving a State of the Union speech in person, and other presidents took the, uh, the mantle. Uh, but still, uh, for the 1930s, 40s, 50s, the State of the Union was a speech, really, it really was a speech to Congress. Uh, but starting with LBJ, it became sort of a television extravaganza with Congress as the studio audience, uh, which is really what, the, what Congress does now in, in the State of the Union. It's, it's, it's an address to the people, and Congress just happens to be there to applaud. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see a State of the Union uh, in just a few minutes. Well, television advanced uh, throughout the 60s and 70s. Uh, Richard Nixon, not generally known as a master of television, uh, put a lot of emphasis on his public communications. Uh, and uh, his speeches, actually, if you read them, were pretty good. Uh, except during Watergate, during his other public uh, appearances, uh, he was not in the best of form. I am not a crook. Uh, that just didn't go over very well. Uh, but uh, one pr president I want to dwell on for a bit because we tend to associate him with the uh, public presidency, the use of rhetoric, of course, is Ronald Reagan. Uh, Reagan, as everybody knows, uh, had spent most of his career as an actor. Uh, he knew a lot about lighting, about sound, about how to carry himself. Uh, and, you know, he, he used to say, well, it's, it's different when you know how you look from behind. Uh, and uh, he did. He uh, had an acute awareness of how he was coming across on the screen. And uh, his critics uh, accused him of being superficial. Now, when you read the speech, you can decide that for yourself. But uh, Reagan, to an extent that people at the time didn't realize, actually did a fair amount of his own writing. During the 1970s, between his governorship of California and his presidency, he uh, gave radio addresses that, for the most part, he wrote himself. And we know this for sure because we have the manuscripts in his uh, rather legible handwriting. Uh, so the guy knew how to put together a sentence. He wasn't a great literary figure, but he could, uh, uh, he could write sentences and paragraphs, which is not necessarily true of all presidents. Um, and the speech I asked you to look at was his 1983 speech to the National Association of evangelicals. And he did express his views on the Soviet Union, which we will uh, talk about in a minute. Uh, you've had a chance to look at the typescript of the speech. But the thing that uh, I gather kind of surprised you 
was that it was not about the Soviet Union exclusively. In fact, the Soviet Union came as sort of the last item in the list of things that he was talking about. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This illustrates a point that we're discussing in the course, and that's the role of religion in American politics. Uh, he was talking to the National Association of Evangelicals, and his uh, agenda item was to get them involved in politics, and specifically get them involved in politics on the side uh, of the causes that he preferred. Now, you may wonder, huh? Why does anybody have to convince evangelicals that they should be involved in politics? I mean, what? The answer is, remember, this is 1983. For a long time, uh, American evangelicals had been hesitant to get involved in politics. Reagan was trying to engage them. He was trying to engage them by talking very directly uh, about religion. And uh, an issue that he emphasized uh, throughout the first part of the speech, of course, uh, was abortion. Uh, we tend to think it's a very uh, contentious issue today, but it's been a contentious issue for decades. And uh, here, it's also important to remember that uh, evangelicals were not in the forefront of opposition to abortion uh, in the 1970s. The Catholic Church was. The evangelicals were slower to get involved in that movement, and Reagan was trying to mobilize them uh, in that direction. Uh, he was talking more broadly about the role of religion in politics, and uh, he even used the fake Tocqueville quotation. Uh, as you know from this class, uh, Tocqueville never wrote that America is great because America is good. But uh, he wanted to do that, and his speechwriter Tony Dolan, who, by the way, was Catholic, uh, but Dolan wrote a uh, good speech pitched to evangelicals, and uh, it included the spurious quotation from Alexis de Tocqueville. And uh, one of the advantages of reading the typescript is that you can see how Reagan tweaked the fake quotation. Uh, he, he, he didn't like uh, the, the exact wording, at, uh, so he, he added uh, the, and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness. Uh, and so Reagan had heard about the fake quotation before, and he uh, just applied his own version to it. Um, and uh, if you want to see him using that line, and also in the context of the speech, here is a clip. And humbly accepted. The American experiment in democracy rests on this insight. Its discovery was the great triumph of our founding fathers, voiced by William Penn, 
when he said, if we will not be governed by God, we must be governed by tyrants. Explaining the inalienable rights of men, Jefferson said, the God who gave us life gave us liberty at the same time. And it was George Washington who said that of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. And finally, that shrewdest of all observers of American democracy, Alexis de Tocqueville, put it eloquently, after he had gone on a search for the secret of America's greatness and genius. And he said, not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness, did I understand the greatness and the genius of America. America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. Well, I'm pleased to... And as you know, Tocqueville never said any such thing. Uh, and you can see the whole typescript there. Uh, yeah, I, I hope you've had a chance to look at it. And you can just see here how deeply engaged Reagan was in the drafting of this speech. Uh, in fact, there are whole sections right here that are in his, uh, his own handwriting that is, he inserted very actively engaged in, uh, in speeches at the time. Uh, mind you, if you go to the Reagan Library and look at typescripts of speeches in the second term, he is much less engaged. Uh, whether it was the early signs of Alzheimer's or simply he was getting older and tired, nobody will ever know. Uh, but in the first term anyway, Reagan was an active participant in the speech writing process. And one of the great things about having access uh, to these typescripts is that you can actually, uh, actually see it. Uh, now, evil empire. Uh, let me set the scene for you. There was a proposal at the time for a nuclear freeze. Uh, to oversimplify, the United States and the Soviet Union would just freeze the number of their strategic nuclear weapons, just hold them in place. Uh, Reagan was trying to stop that. Uh, Reagan did not think this was a good idea because the Soviets had nuclear superiority. As we know now, the Soviet Union was a mess in just about everything else. Uh, the economy was in terrible shape. People had a, had a horrible standard of living. Uh, but they did have a pretty powerful nuclear force. That's one area where they had the advantage. And Reagan didn't want them uh, to have that advantage. So he was trying to stop the movement for a nuclear freeze. Uh, the reason I emphasize this in the past when I had sit-down exams uh, and I'd ask about this speech Sometimes people would answer, uh, this speech was designed to advance President Reagan's proposal for a nuclear freeze, which indicates people weren't quite clear on the concept. Uh, so he was fighting the idea of a nuclear freeze. And remember, it's 1983. The Cold War is still on. Now, in the speech, you'll notice he refers to the Cold War in the past tense. 
uh, sometimes that happened uh, during the 1980s. They referred to the Cold War specifically as a period in the 50s and 60s. We now think of the Cold War as the entire period uh, between the end of World War II and uh, the closing of the Soviet Union on Christmas Day, 1991. So that explains the past tense. But uh, we didn't know in 1983 that the Berlin Wall was going to fall in 1989. If you had gone in a time machine to 1983 and said, eight years from now, the Soviet Union will close. Soviet Union will dissolve. Uh, component parts of the Soviet Union will split off into independent countries, and at least for a while, there will be free elections in Russia. Of course, things kind of change uh, with Vladimir Putin a little later, uh, but the old Soviet Union collapses. I mean, if people would have thought you'd crazy, you, you, you were crazy if you would have said such a thing. Uh, 1983, it was still a going concern. Uh, people were very fearful of the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union was very fearful of the United States. There were times in the 1980s when uh, the Cold War might have gotten hot, uh, and uh, we uh, avoided that. If we hadn't avoided that, we wouldn't be here today. Um, and so Reagan wanted to uh, uh, send a very clear message. Now, again, he thought he could mobilize the evangelicals uh, because uh, Soviet Union is officially, was officially atheistic and wanted to drive that point home to them and uh, engage them against the idea of moral equivalence. And we're going to see that in uh, the, the clip that we're going to show right now. Uh, This is Paul Kengor giving a talk about drop, drop open when, when he said it. the speech. So here is, uh, here's the third and final clip. Yes, let us pray for the salvation of all of those who live in that totalitarian darkness. Pray they will discover the joy of knowing God. But until they do, let us be aware that while they preach the supremacy of the state, declare its omnipotence over individual man and predict its eventual domination of all peoples on the earth. They are the focus of evil in the modern world. It was C.S. Lewis who in his unforgettable screw tape letters wrote, the greatest evil is not done now in those sordid dens of crime that Dickens loved to paint. It is not even done in concentration camps and labor camps. In those, we see its final result. But it is conceived and ordered, moved, seconded, carried, and minuted in clear, carpeted, warmed, and well-lighted offices by quiet men with white collars and cut fingernails and smooth-shaven cheeks who do not need to raise their voice. Well, because these quiet men do not raise their voices, because they sometimes speak in soothing tones of brotherhood and peace, because like other dictators before them, they're always making their final territorial demand, some would have us accept them at their word and accommodate ourselves to their aggressive impulses. But if history teaches anything, it teaches that simple-minded appeasement or wishful thinking about our adversaries is folly. It means the betrayal of our past, the squandering of our freedom.
So I urge you to speak out against those who would place the United States in a position of military and moral inferiority. You know, I've always believed that old Screwtape reserved his best efforts for those of you in the church. So in your discussions of the nuclear freeze proposals, I urge you to beware the temptation of pride, the temptation of blithely uh, declaring yourselves above it all, and label both sides equally at fault, to ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, to simply call the arms race a giant misunderstanding, and thereby remove yourself from the struggle between right and wrong and good and evil. Hmm. Yeah, there was, right? It's an evil empire. Those, those words, an evil empire. When the words focus of evil in the modern world, evil empire come out. He... Okay, and that, uh, you know, Professor Kangori talking more about uh, the evil empire. And uh, this was very controversial at the time because many people wanted to uh, have closer relations with the Soviet Union. And the perception was that by using the term evil, uh, we would be provoking the Soviet Union. Uh, and uh, some of you may have seen the clip I showed from the television series, The Americans, where the two characters who are KGB spies are shocked to see Reagan uh, talking this way. And, that, and uh, yes, within the, uh, the, the Soviet ranks, there was a great deal of shock about Reagan. Now, uh, how much did Reagan's policies have to do with the fall of the Soviet Union? Well, that's uh, quite a debate. Uh, some would argue that uh, at most Reagan's uh, policies were peripheral. The Soviet Union collapsed because of internal reasons. Uh, others would say that the Soviet Union fell because Reagan gave him a push. You decide. Uh, you read the evidence. Uh, I'm sure this will come up in a lot of your courses in international relations. Uh, important thing, again, is uh, what he was using the speech for. This is a case of a presidential speech having multiple audiences. Uh, obviously, his immediate audience was the National Association of Evangelicals. More broadly, it was uh, religious people in the United States, evangelicals in general, uh, whom he wanted to mobilize on behalf of his causes. But when the president speaks, the world listens. Uh, people all over the world knew that he had referred to the Soviet Union as an evil empire. Uh, this was of some concern in Moscow, to put it mildly. But word reached places like Warsaw, and there were people who took inspiration from these words. So in, for some people, it was inspirational. Uh, for other people, it was confrontational and alarmist. So the, um, the uh, uh, speech was uh, a matter of delivering multiple messages to multiple audiences. And we see this uh, a lot in presidential speeches. Uh, I want to talk about uh, another Reagan speech, uh, and this is something that uh, I hope you had a chance to read about in Peggy Noonan's uh, chapter, uh, and that's the D-Day speech. This is a speech he gave uh, on the 6th of June, 1984, 40 years after uh, the landings in Normandy. 
Why 40, not 50? Uh, as a practical matter, uh, veterans of D-Day were getting older. Many of them were, were simply dying. And uh, the uh, White House figured this would be the last chance to get a substantial number of veterans of D-Day in one place. Uh, so uh, a lot of planning went into this. Uh, there was a famous speech that we're going to see at Pont d'Oc, uh, which was a site on the Normandy beach where American rangers scaled a cliff while Germans were shooting at them. Uh, if you've ever been there, I mean, you just look up and you think, wow, this, is, you know, uh, this was an act of amazing bravery for these guys to be able to do that. Now, militarily, that was a different story. Military history, uh, military historians say, well, maybe this was totally unnecessary because the Germans had moved the guns. Well, that's, that's a different issue. There's no gain saying, however, uh, the heroism of the rangers who scaled the cliffs. And that's really what Reagan wanted to celebrate. Uh, democratic writing. We've talked about democratic writing in this course. Bingo. Uh, a case of uh, democratic writing right here. Every speech in the White House goes through what some call the approval loop. Uh, back in the 1980s, uh, it was a paper document. Uh, later on, it would, all of this would be done electronically, uh, but uh, this shows uh, who gets a copy of it, who gets to, uh, to weigh in on the speech. And from the perspective of the speechwriter, this, this can be somewhat annoying. You labor mightily on five drafts of a speech, and then everybody wants to have a, a say in it. Uh, if you recall from the chapter, uh, Peggy Noonan says, a speech is a fondue pot. Uh, which is a figure of speech that Danielle Allen would probably approve of. Uh, yeah, everybody wants to have a say in the speech. And uh, even though it's annoying for the speechwriter, sometimes the approval loop uh, can, uh, can save you. In this case, there was a factual error in the original version of the speech. Uh, let me uh, enlarge this a little. Uh, ben Elliott was the guy in charge of uh, speech writing. See page two, suggest double-check facts of Army, as I recall. Uh, the, uh, the, gun, uh, the big guns were not in place at the top of the cliffs. Uh, they had uh, been moved, which is true. Uh, so uh, they checked the facts. Jim was right. And uh, they changed the text of the speech to remove the factual error. This, by the way, didn't work with the fake Tocqueville, uh, <laughs> fake Tocqueville comment, uh, but you know, nobody's perfect. So the speech goes through the approval loop. In this case, uh, it uh, had the intended effect. See the circled ideas, the enemy guns were quieted, etc. Uh, and so uh, Reagan gave this famous speech. And again, it's worth uh, seeing some of the video. Listen to the Book Notes Plus podcast with Brian Lamb every Tuesday. Have a seat and dignity. May he rest in peace. Ronald Wayne Reagan passing away today. Began. Much of Europe had been under a terrible year to mark that day in history when the Allied armies joined in battle to reclaim this continent to liberty.
For four long years, much of Europe had been under a terrible shadow. Free nations had fallen. Jews cried out in the camps. Millions cried out for liberation. Europe was enslaved and the world prayed for its rescue. Here in Normandy, the rescue began. Here, the Allies stood and fought against tyranny in a giant undertaking unparalleled in human history. We stand on a lonely, windswept point on the northern shore of France. The air is soft, but 40 years ago at this moment, the air was dense with smoke and the cries of men, and the air was filled with the crack of rifle fire and the roar of cannon. At dawn on the morning of the 6th of June, 1944, 225 rangers jumped off the British landing craft and ran to the bottom of these cliffs. Their mission was one of the most difficult and daring of the invasion, to climb these sheer and desolate cliffs and take out the enemy guns. The Allies had been told that some of the mightiest of these guns were here, and they would be trained on the beaches to stop the Allied advance. The Rangers looked up and saw the enemy soldiers at the edge of the cliffs shooting down at them with machine guns and throwing grenades. And the American Rangers began to climb. They shot rope ladders over the face of these cliffs and began to pull themselves up. When one Ranger fell, another would take his place. When one rope was cut, a Ranger would grab another and begin his climb again. They climbed, shot back, and held their footing. Soon, one by one, the rangers pulled themselves over the top, and in seizing the firm land at the top of these cliffs, they began to seize back the continent of Europe. 225 came here. After two days of fighting, only 90 could still bear arms. Behind me is a memorial that symbolizes the ranger daggers that were thrust into the top of these cliffs. And before me are the men who put them there. These are the boys of Puente Hope. These are the men who took the cliffs. These are the champions who helped free a continent. And these are the heroes who helped end a war. Gentlemen, I look at you and I think of the words of Stevens. Okay. Uh, these are the boys of Pointe de Oak. That, that is a line that is remembered even to this day there. Uh, two years ago, my family went to Normandy and we stood in that very spot. And our tour guide was there and he took out a piece of paper. He read that speech. He read that speech. Uh, so it made a tremendous impression. Now, obviously, it's 1984. I mean, do the arithmetic. Reagan's running for re-election. Obviously, everything the president does during a re-election year has something to do with that. And this associated Reagan with heroism, with military strength, with American history. Uh, but uh, that's one of the advantages you get when you're the incumbent president. Now, the other uh, speech, uh, the other speechwriter memoir I asked you to, uh, to look at is by Ben Waldman. Uh, as I mentioned before, the CMC parent. And uh, I, Michael Waldman, Ben is his son. Okay, Freudian CMC slip there. Uh, Michael Waldman. And uh, this focus is on 
uh, Clinton talking about Social Security. This is an issue that favored the Democrats, has favored the Democrats since FDR. Every so often, Republicans would try to do something with Social Security, and it would always blow up in their faces. And uh, so this was an opportunity for Clinton to seize the public attention and focus on this issue. Uh, so uh, they include a line in the speech about save Social Security first. Uh, what could you do if you were a Republican? Could you withhold applause from that with all your uh, elderly constituents watching on television? I don't think so because the camera is going to pan the chamber and uh, those of us who are old people, we notice who's applauding for us and who isn't. Okay. Uh, so this the very end of the chapter, something really important happens to President Clinton. Uh, the controversy that, uh, the controversy that will uh, eventually lead to his impeachment. So how does he address it in the speech? He doesn't. Doesn't say a word about it. And, and people were saying, well, what is Clinton going to say about all this? Is he going to resign? Is he going to? No, he's just going to tough it out. I'm just going to ignore all that, and I'm going to give the speech I want to give. Uh, and he did. And so... C-SPAN, more relevant than ever. So we'll advance to the port... Now, if we balance the budget for next year, it is projected that we'll then have a sizable surplus in the years that immediately follow. What should we do with this projected surplus? I have a simple four-word answer. Save Social Security first. Okay, save Social Security first, because some Republicans were talking about using the surplus for more tax cuts. Uh, and he trumped them on that, to use a, uh, uh, a peculiar verb there. The, uh, uh, and this was all planned, and uh, it turns out the reaction to the speech was generally very positive. And uh, from the standpoint of crisis communication... This is a terrific illustration of the line that I've quoted before from Mad Men. If you don't like what's being said, change the conversation. So he just changed the conversation. I'm going to talk about Social Security. You can all t talk about all that uh, you know, very sordid stuff later. I'm, I'm going to talk about what I'm doing. And it worked for him. Public opinion stayed uh, with Bill Clinton. 1998 elections, the Republicans actually lost seats in the House when they expected to gain them. Uh, so say what you will about Bill Clinton's uh, 
policies, uh, he was one of the most brilliant politicians we've ever had in the White House. And I think this clip uh, illustrates that point. Last point that I want to make before we get into uh, Q&A, the the role of religion. Uh, We saw uh, President Reagan talking about religion, and you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's just Reagan, right? Uh, Lots and lots of presidents have talked about religion. Uh, And it's curious that uh, among the presidents who talked about it most is Barack Obama. Uh, And I say it's curious because during the uh, 2008 campaign, there were people saying, oh, we don't know what his religious beliefs are. Mm, A name like Barack Obama? Mm, We don't know. Uh, Which is uh, peculiar given that he is uh, very religious, uh, knows the Bible better probably than a lot of the people who were criticizing him. And in this speech, uh, this is the White House Easter prayer breakfast, uh, 2015. He talks in very, very, very direct terms, very specifically Christian terms uh, about his beliefs. In a better place. I am no preacher. I can't tell anything to this crowd about Easter that you don't already know. Uh, I can offer just a couple of reflections very quickly before we begin the program. Uh, For me, the celebration of Easter puts our earthly concerns into perspective. With humility and with awe, we give thanks to the extraordinary sacrifice uh, of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Reflect on the brutal pain that he suffered, the scorn that he absorbed, the sins that he bore, this extraordinary gift uh, of salvation that he gave to us. And we try as best we can to comprehend the darkness that he endured so that we might receive God's light. And yet, even as we grapple with the sheer enormity of Jesus' sacrifice, uh, on Easter we can't lose sight of the fact that the story didn't end on Friday. story keeps on going. On Sunday comes the glorious resurrection of our Savior. Good Friday may occupy the throne for a day, Dr. King once preached, but ultimately it must give way to the triumphant beat of the drums of Easter. Drums that beat the rhythm of renewal and redemption, goodness and grace, hope and love. Easter is our affirmation that there are better days ahead. And also a reminder that uh, it is on us, the living, to make them so. Through God's mercy, Peter the Apostle said, We are given an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's an inheritance that calls on us to be better, to love more deeply, to serve the least of these as an expression of Christ's love here on earth. It's the spirit we feel in the example of His Holiness, Pope Francis, who encourages us to seek peace, serve the marginalized, and be good stewards of God's creation. Um, Like millions of Americans, I'm honored that we will be welcoming him to our country later this year. Uh, I want to quote him. He says that we should strive 
to see the Lord in every excluded person who is thirsty, hungry, naked. To see the Lord present even in those who have lost their faith, in the imprisoned, sick, unemployed, persecuted. To see the Lord in the leper, whether in body or soul, who encounters discrimination. Isn't that how Jesus lived? Okay. So, with that, let me focus on uh, questions and comments. One question I would uh, like to pose. Why did uh, President Obama use that uh, particular reference? Why did he quote Pope Francis? Again, a couple of things are going on here. Uh, you know, why quote Pope Francis? So, thoughts. years, and I think the reason Obama specifically chose Pope Francis is because he's still appealing to very religious crowds, and at the same time, his general base, which may not be as religious, can better accept the Pope's views if they're less conservative in their Catholicism. Uh, that's right. Uh, again, Pope Francis, a uh, different kind of Pope, uh, emphasizing uh, inclusion. Uh, he's from South America. The uh, and actually, uh, uh, you know, we might talk about this in another time. He's rare among popes. He has a scientific background. He worked as a chemist at one time. Uh, but in this case, he's talking about the marginalized, the leper. Uh, so doing an entirely different take on the Christian message than uh, a lot of other politicians uh, will make. He's, uh, the president here is talking about uh, his personal beliefs, but... He's casting them in ways that will be appealing to more progressive voters. Uh, and so this draws uh, a contrast between the way uh, Barack Obama talks about religion and the way uh, Ronald Reagan does. So, point of contrast, uh, I know uh, from talking to you before class, some of you were a bit surprised by the evil empire speech. What reaction did you have when you looked at that? I was just really expecting them to be focusing on the Soviet Union and the relationship America's having with it. But then all of a sudden he was talking about abortion and talking about abortion's relationship to God. Um, so I feel that that idea that it's just focused on our relationship with the Soviet Union was pretty skewed because I think Reagan had other intentions with that speech. Yes, that's, uh, that's right. Other thoughts, other re comments or reactions? Yeah. Um, I actually thought it was interesting that he structured the speech in that way. Like, he starts off by going off on abortion. Um, I thought part of the reason could be because when he's talking about the evil empire, he is directly setting up a scenario in which he's not saving lives. Um, and so I feel like the way that he Put in, like put abortion into the conversation, made it so that he's appealing to this religious um, group by saying, "Oh, you have to save the unborn child." Insert religion into politics, and that's the only way to like save the unborn child. And so he kind of goes off of this like rhetoric around abortion about like saving lives, and that was sort of how he set up his appeal to then go into the nuclear phase. Okay. He also mentioned an amendment that he was trying to pass to mm -hmm. mandate prayer in school. I was curious about your perspective on that and 
it seems that it ended up failing, even though it seemed optimistic in the speech that it did. Yeah, and realistically, uh, no one actually thought that the school prayer amendment would become part of the Constitution. I worked in Washington starting shortly after that speech. Uh, a lot of politicians talked about it, but everybody knew it was not going to happen, And uh, but it was extremely appealing. And it had substantial public support in large areas of the United States. You're still, to this day, going to find lots of people who think that ought to be part of the Constitution, and that is the constituency that he was talking to. Um, I think that he also talks about the family unit in a way, um, and kind of creates that as a distinction between the way America views the family, and also abortions without the consent of the parents being wrong in America's eyes, to the Soviet Union's uh, view of family, which is much different than America's. So I think he blends social conservative ideals very well with um, how America represents it and how the Soviet Union is the antithesis of that as well. Yeah, and something we'll talk later when we get into uh, political parties uh, and the speech uh, nicely illustrates is that at the time the conservative movement was a fusion of, on the one hand, social conservatives uh, who are very concerned about issues like family, abortion, etc., and national security conservatives who were very, very strongly anti-communist. And uh, that brought uh, a lot of those uh, people into the tent. Uh, remember, the Cold War was a personal issue for a lot of Americans because a large fraction of voters actually had roots in countries that were behind the, uh, the Iron Curtain, uh, particularly Polish Americans. Uh, who were very much aware that at the time the, uh, the Pope was Polish. Uh, and uh, you know, part of the message was directed at, uh, at them as well as to the evangelicals. Uh, so you had the social conservatives, the, uh, the national security conservatives. Uh, at other times Reagan spoke to the economic conservatives uh, with mixed results. On the one hand, he cut taxes. On the other hand, spending increased. Uh, so that's not a new story. Uh, in, in, in recent years, we've had uh, a similar pattern in, in fiscal politics. Uh, but we, uh, that's something we did see during the 1980s. Yeah? Yeah, sort of like to, to go off of what Peter said. I think it's very interesting how in connecting, like, the sort of contrasting these family social conservative values with the Soviet Union, he's also... Um, he's incorporating those social values with economic values as well. It's not just that, you know, it's like the state shouldn't, uh, or, or, you know, should prevent abortion. It's that uh, the, the state presence in economic life is anti-family and anti-religion. Uh, and the Soviet Union provides this, like, excellent foil for, for making that point. Sure. And, uh, again, very much on people's minds during the 1980s. Sure. He also, in addition to creating this image of America as a good as opposed to the Soviet Union as an evil empire, he also talks about um, how America is great and how America is good in relation to Alexis de Tocqueville. But he also emphasizes like the original sin of America yeah. being uh, minority marginalization and slavery. Uh, so I thought that was interesting, kind of appealing to that evangelical understanding of sin in his speech. Yeah, and we didn't have time uh, for uh, the entire speech, but Professor Kengor in the uh, 
uh, in the talk from which I uh, drew these clips uh, emphasized that. In fact, that was the part of the speech that got the most applause from the immediate audience uh, when he was talking about uh, transcending um, the history of slavery and about the necessity to stand firm against bigotry in all forms. Uh, and he, you know, he's talking about hate groups having arisen in America, and he urged his audience to stand up against them. Uh, and they, they applauded. Now, uh, Reagan had lots of critics. Uh, if you read uh, some of the critical accounts of the Reagan administration, you will, uh, you know, there were some people who said, well, Reagan was actually using dog whistles himself to appeal to these groups. That is one line of criticism that, uh, that you will come across. I think when you talk about audiences in the Noonan excerpts, at uh, the very last page, she has something like what the staffing process would do to the Gettysburg Address. Yes. I think what really well illustrates the audience of the Evil Empire speech is in this, where like certain lines in the Gettysburg Address, like conceived in liberty, they would have scratched it because there's too much sexual imagery and implied teen pregnancy. Which, when we're reading it, it doesn't seem like that. When you apply it to that specific audience, the Gettysburg Address is like an entirely different speech. So I think it's, uh, you can really see how specifically focused the Evil Empire speech was on the audience, just more conservative rather than um, only conservative evangelicals, but it's still incredibly like straightforward and very narrow. Sure. And uh, what did you get from the, uh, from the speech writers? Uh, because this is something a lot of you guys are going to be doing, maybe not for a president, uh, but I guarantee you that some of you in the years ahead are going to be doing internships, maybe for a politician, maybe for an advocacy group, and some of you are going to be writing speeches. Uh, so what did you get out of these, uh, these two chapters, one by a Republican, one by a Democrat? Well, I think for both, in both cases, everyone wants their own opinion and wants their own input, and especially wants to have their own ideas emphasized in their speeches. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or Republican. Um, it feels like each politician has a different agenda, um, but also proofreading is extremely important. Yes. <laughs> So, yeah. Yes, and uh, again, in the in the case of the fake Tocqueville quote, there was a proofreading fail. The Noonan the Noonan excerpt specifically reminded me of George Orwell's essay, Politics in the English Language. So Noonan wants to infuse all of these like colorful uh, imagery into her speeches, but the the policy wants, as she calls them, kind of are preventing that and don't want it and want it to be very like technical and. Um, all that in their speeches. Yeah, and that is a constant tension in, in the speech writing process between the uh, between the policy experts and uh, the people who like uh, to uh, put together colorful and memorable prose. Uh, and uh, that's always going to be part of the uh, the tension in uh, in the speech writing process, and part of what Daniel Allen again called democratic writing. Uh, you know, my own experience, I remember one time I was writing something when I was in Washington, and I quoted, uh, something there is that doesn't love a wall, okay? Where's that from? Robert Frost, yes. And uh, my boss, uh, the, uh, the person who uh, was immediately reviewing that was seemingly unfamiliar with Robert Frost, and she wrote, does not sound right. Uh, so I had to explain where it came from. It ended up uh, on the uh, discard pile anyway. Uh, so I have lots of uh, 
uh, frustrating stories from my own time uh, writing speeches and uh, other materials in Washington. Uh, what else? Other, other major takeaways from this re- week's readings? Yeah, Joshua. Well, I was just going to say on the process of speech writing, especially reading the I was surprised by how much like the policy experts scrutinized over every single word. Like I remember the China speech, for example, where uh, one expert policy person was like taking issue with the history as a river analogy and somehow linked that to like Marxism and communism, you know. And the speechwriter's like, I'm just trying to use a nice metaphor. Yeah, and uh, again, tremendously frustrating for speechwriters, but. Uh, Speeches, when you're, president, when you're president of the United States, every word weighs a ton. And if you use the wrong words, there are going to be major consequences. For example, George W. Speech, George w. Bush gave a speech in which uh, in, uh, he talked about Iraq's uh, efforts to seek uh, yellow cake uranium. And uh, he said it was confirmed by, you know, he, he mentioned British intelligence, etc., uh, you know, just a, a short passage in one speech, uh, but that one short passage led to enormous controversy for years. Uh, the underlying intelligence was uh, faulty, to say the least. Uh, so that's why, uh, you know, it's frustrating if you're a speechwriter, but you can kind of understand, particularly when it comes to foreign policy, uh, why the experts want to have a crack at it. Yeah, adding on to that, what's ironic is that is a direct biblical uh, uh, quotation, Amos 5.24, yes, let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing uh, never stream. You know, like, and uh, throughout the speech, the attempt is to associate government, freedom, and liberty with religion and saying that they are one and the same. Uh, also... In the speech, he says, when our founding fathers passed the First Amendment, they sought to protect churches from government interference. They never intended to construct a wall of hostility between government and the concept of religious belief itself. And also, in a different uh, part, excerpt of the the speech, he basically was making reference to all of the times throughout history that uh, our government has made reference to, like, religious belief, when that is not necessarily at the, the core of um, that like our national institution, that separation exists for a reason. Yeah, and that's something we'll be talking about when we get to our discussion of civil liberties and the First Amendment. Adrian? On that note, Reagan certainly had to walk that line between arguing that government totalitarianism is evil in its form, but also saying that we must use the power of government to enforce some measure of religion because of you know moral value or anything that can be derived from that. And I think it was effective in how he gave a speech that he really didn't have to go at that question, rather saying, these are the issues, this is why it's important, we have government, and made that kind of argument on the First Amendment, saying we can do it and it's necessary. Okay, and, okay, uh, last two words. Uh, on the Noonan chapter again, I wonder if um, she sort of she talks about... Um, the loss of uh, present speeches as, as literature, you know, and that the, like, political consultants have sort of turned them just into, like, mush. Um, and I wonder if you think that there is, like, an appetite in the modern political climate, like, if Americans would be receptive to the more, like, you know, highfalutin rhetorical um, style that, that was, like, more common, you know, a few decades ago. The short answer is some would, and some wouldn't. Uh... 
you know, the previous president was not known for highfalutin rhetoric, but it was effective with the previous president's base. And that's something that politicians pay attention to. And last word. As Josh, adding on to what Josh was saying earlier about scrutinizing every word of the speech, uh, it reminds me of something from the Waldman chapter when the, the Monica Lewinsky scandal broke out. They were looking through any possible interpretation that could be drawn from the speech that would be interpreted in the wrong way, and they were removing every single instance of that. And I thought that was kind of um, an interesting way to go about it. Yeah, I mean, he was talking about Paul Begala, you know, going through it. Now, Paul is, uh, you know, extremely familiar with opposition research, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, no, anticipating how Republicans would be able to go after the speech and. Uh, uh, that's, uh, again, frustrating for the speechwriter, but you have to have a political person who knows how the other side is going to uh, respond. And on that highly practical note, um, I will draw today's class to a close and uh, hope you've gotten a little bit of insight into presidential rhetoric, and we will uh, continue our look at the presidency in our virtual class on Wednesday. Take care. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. Be sure to check out our Book Notes Plus podcast. Our guest this week is Mike Duncan, author of the book Hero of Two Worlds, the Marquis de Lafayette in the Age of Revolution. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts and on the new C-SPAN Now app.